Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project. Today, the music instinct. We're going to welcome back to the show Dan Levitin. He's a neuroscientist, specialist in brain science, who studies music. He's also a musician himself and a record producer. He's the author of the best-selling book, This Is Your Brain on Music. If you listen to this show much, you might have heard my interview with him a couple of years ago. We discussed the neuroscience of music and listened to a lot of musical examples together. Well, we got together again more recently and continued in the same vein, but this time with a focus on the evolution of human musicality. That's the subject of Dan Levitin's latest book. It's called The World in Six Songs, How the Musical Brain Created Human Nature. It's Dan Levitin's contention that music has played a fundamental role in shaping the human mind, and we'll hear him make that argument in the hour ahead. There's a story you tell in your book uh, about your grandmother and her relation to a special song. Yeah. I was wondering if you could repeat it for us here. Well, my grandmother was an immigrant, like many Americans, older family members. You know, she was an immigrant to this country, uh, in her case from Germany, and she escaped uh, certain death there and tyranny and uh, was very grateful that you know she was able to bring her family here. And um, she used to sing the song, God Bless America, every morning, and for her 80th birthday, my mother and I bought her a little Radio Shack electronic keyboard. And we put, she didn't know how to play an instrument, but we put little pieces of masking tape on the keys that she would press with numbers on them, one, two, three, so that she'd know how to plink out God Bless America on the piano to accompany herself. And she loved it. She played the piano every morning, and I think by the age of 86, she had worked out a kind of rudimentary harmony with the left hand. She played God Bless America every morning on that thing, and I think it gave her a kind of sense of purpose and a, a sense of that was her job, was to, to do that, a kind of a ritual. She was a, a Jewish immigrant from Germany, escaped uh, yeah. Nazi Germany. Yeah. Did she know that Irving Berlin, the composer of God Bless America, was a Jewish immigrant as well? She did know that, yeah. yeah. What she didn't know, and I only discovered recently, was that Irving Berlin could not play the piano much better than she. <laughs> he is a, an interesting case of a composer who's not a musician. Of course, there are many cases of the opposite. To the best of my knowledge, Yasha Heifetz never wrote anything. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, that it's... It underscores the idea that music is actually um, a set of different abilities. There are a lot of different things that go into becoming musical. And we don't usually acknowledge that musicality can take all these different forms. You can be a composer, you can be a performer, you can be a professional listener and not play an instrument. Many disc jockeys and A&R people at record labels, talent scouts, don't play an instrument, but have an uncanny knack of knowing what works musically and mm -hmm. what music goes together. Mm -hmm. But uh, musicality in general, and, and this is your argument in the book, is uh, essential to being human, you say, and essential to yeah. human evolution. I don't know that I would say essential, but um, I think Core music... element of our identity as a species, is how yeah. you put it. I, I'm not trying to mince words, but I want to be accurate. I think, in my mind, essential implies that we wouldn't have lived without it. And I'm not sure I want to make that strong a claim. Mm. But what I will say is that I don't think we would be where we are as a society without music. I think music made a lot of what we take for granted in terms of our cognitive development, 
our evolution of brain and culture. I think uh, music was a, a core element of all of that. You say it, quote, paved the way for more complex behaviors such as language, large-scale cooperative undertakings, and the passing down of important information from one generation to the next. Yeah. Now, you would say that. You're a musician, a record producer, a neuroscientist who studies music. Are you one of those hammers who uh, thinks everything is a nail? Well, um, I try to be open-minded. I'm trying to work <laughs> from the data to the conclusions. You know, uh, the idea about information being handed down, I mean, this is empirically demonstrated. It's an empirical um, finding. It's not something I made up. Before there was the written word, before anyone thought to put writing on paper or papyrus or parchment or stone tablets, if you wanted to preserve knowledge, you had to memorize that knowledge. And I'm talking about important things like um, which foods will poison you or how to preserve mm -hmm. meat or if the well runs dry, where do you, how do you get new water or you know, sort of your oral family history. This is who we are and where we came from kind of things. And I'm talking caveman days. If you uh, or any, you know, you could even be during the age of agriculture. You don't have to go back that far, but before, you know, pre-literate days, if you wanted to remember something, it was encoded in an, uh, a song. Usually, songs are the way that knowledge was passed down from generation to generation. How do we know that? Well, we can make inferences by looking at contemporary pre-literate societies. You look in the, you know, intrepid anthropologists have gone to the Amazon and to New Guinea and. Sub-Saharan Africa, and you see the way, you know, Pacific Island communities, you see the way people who have been cut off from all civiliz Western civilization, all technology for, for thousands of years, uh, as far as they tell us, uh, they didn't even know there was anyone else in the world. They've been living their lives this way for, you know, thousands of years, and, you know, this is the way they live. They, they gather berries and nuts, and they hunt, and uh, they... Um, have s relatively s um, small living groups, and they make their own shelter uh, from the vegetation that's readily available, and they passed on information through songs. We don't have to look that far beyond our own culture. The Old Testament, the basis of all Judeo-Christian uh, religion, was uh, passed down orally, according to the um, even the writings tell us that that for you know many many uh, generations, the Old Testament was in, encased in song before anybody wrote it down. It was transmitted by singing. Yeah. And why is it that singing, why is it that music makes it easier to transmit and remember than, say, just reciting Well, music? if you just recite the words, there's nothing that can, you know, grammar constrains the words to some extent. If I say the pizza was too hot to beyond... You know, beyond is the wrong part of speech. I need to put some sort of verb there. The pizza was too hot to what? To eat, to digest, to pick up, to... I mean, I could even say the pizza was too hot to sleep. And although that's anomalous, it's not anomalous grammatically, mm -hmm. uh, only semantically. So uh, regular speech has some constraints, but not as many as music mm -hmm. or poetry, mm -hmm. where um, the mutually reinforcing cues of accent and meter... Rhyme, alliteration, uh, there's a, a greater structure there mm -hmm. that uh, constrains the meaning. So you look at the songs you know, and uh, you may not remember all the words, and you may have to sort of invent them as you're singing along, but you're going to get it mostly right. Mm -hmm. You're saying that, that music 
gives us that very narrow range of options to choose from when it comes to filling in a blank. You know, it helps us yes. to fill in that blank. It's got to rhyme. It's got to uh, have the right meter and all of that yes. to sound musical. That's what I'm calling uh, constraints. And then there's structure. something about melodies that just stick in our mind. I mean, I, I want to give you one example that you yourself cite in, in, in the book. Buckle up for safety. Buckle up. Buckle up for safety. Always buckle up. Pull your seatbelt snug. Give an extra tug. Buckle up for safety. Buckle up. Buckle up for safety. Buckle up. That's, that brings back the memories. That's an old uh, public service announcement right. from, from TV uh, yeah. from when you were a kid. Well, you know, um, one of the reasons that melodies are easy to remember is, again, the idea of constraints. There is this principle of cognitive neuroscience that the way we remember things, I talk about this more in my first book, you know, the sort of neuroscience of memory and, and music is in This Is Your Brain on Music. And the world in six songs is more about the biology, the evolution, and um you know, there's a lot more neurochemistry this time around, but some of the, the basic ideas are in the first book. And it's a principle of, of, the co of cognitive neuroscience that we have a tendency to offload from our memory all that we can and put it out in the world into structure. I'll give you an example. If I ask you to uh, name all the animals that you can, and this is actually part of IQ tests that they give kids, uh, the average intelligent kids just start naming animals at random. Mm -hmm. The more intelligent ones, and this is a, an indication of IQ, use some sort of a system. They search their imagination for a household... A Z, maybe. Yeah, or, or, or uh, that's one strategy. All the animals you can think of as A, aardvark, anteater, ant, uh, you know, and then they move on to antelope, then they move on to the bees. Or uh, That's a strategy. That's offloading from your memory... Uh, some of the content and information into the external world. Or uh, categorically, think of animals around the house, dog, cat, parakeet, goldfish. Okay, I, I run out now, so uh, I go to the barnyard. Pig, sheep, goat. Mm. There's structure that's helping to uh, reinforce memory. Music has a great deal of structure. For one thing, we only have 12 notes, and we don't use those notes randomly. There's this notion of tonality, Within each culture, we have our own notion of tonality. For us, it's the, um, the so-called major and minor scales, the diatonic scales. Uh, and so a melody like buckle up for safety, buckle up, it has to make some of the choices that it makes. It can't be buckle up for safety, buckle up. I mean, that, that's, you know, I'm hitting in the cracks there. I'm hitting funny intervals. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound right. It couldn't be that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, there are several things it could be, but that's not one of them. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why you and uh, many others remember that song and probably don't remember this ad for the, the same cause. Hello, I'm O.J. Simpson, and I'm the first to admit that in almost any situation, it's best to stay loose on the football field or in a social gathering. Now, none of us like to be tied down to one spot, but there is one exception to this rule, and that's in an automobile. When you get in the car, snap that seatbelt, buckle up for safety. Sure, it ties you down a little bit, but it also may save your life. So stay loose almost anywhere else but in a car. Buckle up for safety. Stay loose with the juice. <laughs> we tend not to remember... We, we tend not to remember uh, spoken words. There are exceptions. You know, I mean, everybody remembers, go ahead, make my day. Mm. Or, 
excuse me, mm. right? I mean, mm. there are these, these little... But there is a kind of musical quality to these utterances uh. that we remember. Uh, and uh, they're, they're also kind of an iconic quality to those utterances. You know, uh, play it again, sham. I mean, but, you know, we don't remember nearly as much in, unless we set out to remember a poem or, you know, four score and seven years ago our forefathers, you know, I mean... They, yeah, I mean, these kinds of things, though, we, have to, we, we work at memorizing them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you identify six sort of archetypal songs. Is that a good word for it? I'm not sure they're archetypes in the sense that uh, to say that they are suggests that these are um, inflexible, rigid, mm. exclusive categories and that songs are written into the categories. The way I think about the categories is that... Um, they're, fuzz, they're fuzzy, boundaried categories. A song can be in more than one, and I can write a song in one category, but if you perceive it in another, it's your experience that's what is, it's important. And it's not a musicological theory. It's a psychological one. Uh, so the archetype, I think, suggests that it's musicological, that, oh, there, there are songs written in this key <clears throat> or with <throat> these kinds of chords, right. and it's not about that. It's about how we use music. So... I was interviewed for a newspaper yesterday, and the reporter said, um, so after you came up with this theory of six songs, <laughs> did you find it difficult to uh, support it with the evidence? And I said, well, you've got it backwards. That that ain't how science works. <laughs> I went through the evidence first. <laughs> and, and the you know... For somebody who does data analysis for a living, which is one way of looking at what the scientist's job is, I often end up with millions of data points from brain scans. And my job is to look at those data from every possible angle and you know, live with them for a long time and listen to the story they're trying to tell me. The, the truth lay, lays somewhere inside this collection of facts and observations and measurements. And out of that emerges a theory. And the theory is of six categories of song. Yes, not six songs. Right, not six songs. You call it the world in six songs, but six but categories. Six categories, And right. they are? Well, I mean, like the... Uh, Want to tick them off for us? Yeah, so they're friendship, comfort, joy, uh, knowledge, religion, and love. Got it. And your, your grandmother's favorite, God Bless America, falls into the joy category. I put it in joy, uh, because Could I think be comfort too. Maybe, I think she found it comforting, yeah. and I think there was a certain family history in, embedded in it, which might make it a knowledge song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are negative emotions we all feel, like anger. Uh, and you know, well, why isn't that a category? I was wondering about that because I could play you some music right now that falls into that slot quite nicely. Sure. So uh, I guess it depends on what you're trying to communicate emotionally to the listener. Music is primarily a means of emotional communication. It's metaphorical. As an art form, it's not meant to be literal. In other words, a poem isn't a news report, as Helen Vendler, the great poetry critic from Harvard, says. It's an interpretation of an event, and that's what music really comes down to. Uh, When we hear the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, we're not hearing all the details. We're hearing a, a representative sampling of those that the songwriter felt we needed to know, the Ballad of John Henry, for another example. Steel Driving Man. (laughs) <laughs> An anger song might be a kind of oral history. Mm-hmm. This is this is what I'm feeling like, or this is what so-and-so felt like. Uh, and uh, it's a personality portrait. In that sense, it's a knowledge song. You're trying to impart a kind of psychological profile 
of a real or fictitious person, I would say Jimi Hendrix's manic depression falls in that mm. category. He's trying to tell us what it's like so that we don't have to go through it ourselves. Uh, an angry song could also be a social bonding, or what I call friendship, as, a be- as an easier mnemonic, friendship songs. Mm-hmm. Suppose that you and I decide that we're really fed up with racism, and we want to write a song that, about how much we hate racism and how angry we are about it, and its purpose is to bind together people of like sentiment. That anger and hatred song is, in a sense, a friendship song because we're looking for like-minded people. Other side of the coin, huh? I mean, the other side of that, that anger that you're describing. Yeah. Well, you say that uh, you believe that synchronous coordinated song and movement were, and I'm quoting from you, were what created the strongest bonds between early humans or proto-humans. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of the research that's been done on this uh, has been done in the neuroscience laboratory, and a lot of it's been anthropological. There was an interesting book by uh, William McNeil on um, the importance of movement and synchrony and marching mm-hmm. throughout history. Mm-hmm. And um, that led me to read uh, what Sun Tzu had to say in The Art of War. And he talks about, and this is centuries ago, of course, Sun Tzu is talking about the importance of synchronized motor movements among members of an army. Something like this. Exactly. Sun Tzu points out that in hand-to-hand combat, you know, in the time he was writing, it was mostly swords. Uh, if your side, if the people that are part of your, your team, if you're not synchronized carefully, orchestrated carefully, you're going to hurt each other. Uh, you know, think about railroad workers pounding the stakes in on the railroad tracks, on the ties. Uh, they've got to coordinate the hammer blows or they're going to hit each other. So um, it turns out that music is a very good way to synchronize motor movement. And the reason is that, well, you could say, well, you know, when you're building the Roman aqueducts or the Egyptian pyramids or, you know, whatever it is that is being built, why not just look at what everybody else is doing? Well, because then you're taking your eyes off your work. Mm -hmm. The thing about sound that's different from vision is that you can do it, you know, while being able to put your eyes wherever you want. The sound, the, the, the rhythm... One, two, you know, or the one, two, heave, ho, right? I mean, all of this is being done synchronously through this other sensory medium, sound. And uh, I say that some of the evidence comes from neuroscience. You look at what's going on in the brains of people who are hearing music, and those, it, those very parts of the brain that would be moving your body are firing the, the neural structures in the motor cortex, premotor cortex, cerebellum, we see them firing when people listen to music, even if they're lying perfectly still. Uh-huh. It's as though the natural thing is to move, and the fact that they're still is, you know, that's, that's the frontal cortex overriding and suppressing the very natural movement. Uh, you speak of the frontal cortex, and in fact, the, uh, the prefrontal cortex plays into your theory. Um, one of the, well, you have a number of statements in the book that are, that are, that are pretty bold, and one of them is the evolution this is your idea, I think. The evolution of a single brain mechanism, probably located in the prefrontal cortex. That's where people get lobotomies, by the way, isn't it? Uh, created a I'd common... rather have a free bottle in front of me than a prefrontal lobotomy. <laughs> there you go. And uh, so the prefrontal cortex, you say, 
created a common mode of thought that underlies the development of both language and art. I think it's unfair to say this is my idea. Really and truly, um, the ideas of the book come from the research that's been conducted, and there are 40 pages of notes Mm -hmm. at the end of the book. I mean, the only thing I think that I would claim as my idea, and even then I don't think it's fair to take credit for it, is this idea of the six categories. And uh, although I may have been the first person to put them together, I think anybody who sifted through the data could have done it. So I I think my contribution is in the writing of the story, but not in the discovery. Okay, so others have proposed, though, that this, this, this change in the brain, in this particular part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, that made it musical preceded things like language and art. Um, I don't know that others have made that claim, but uh-huh. I think that's what the data point to. Pretty strong claim. So, well, I mean, what is the evidence to uh, to quote that newspaper reporter? Well, so for example, um, uh, if we look at um, endocasts of Neanderthal brains, it seems that they were developing the area we call Broadman area forty four or Broca's area. Mm-hmm. This is the part of the uh, brain that we can we now know um, subserves human language. Mm-hmm. And it's only in the last few years that we've realized how it enables language. Broca's area contains mirror neurons. These are the monkey see, monkey do neurons that were discovered in in Italy by Giacomo Rizzolatti some years ago and made a lot of headlines. One monkey in the laboratory was peeling a banana, and somebody had forgotten to take the electrodes off another monkey. And it turned out that the second monkey had enormous amounts of firing in those parts of his brain that would actually be peeling a banana Mm. if he were doing it himself. But he wasn't. He was sitting perfectly still. But what it taught us was that there's a part of the brain that's looking at the world and looking at action and figuring out, how would I make that action? Well, it kind of makes sense. If you stick your tongue out at a two-week-old infant, it'll stick its tongue out at you. How does it know how to do that? How does it even know where its tongue is or what it's going to look like when it does that? It it hasn't seen a mirror before. Mm -hmm. How does it know when it sees you do something, taking it in through one sense, the eyes, that it has to command certain circuits in its brain to fire to make it do the same thing? Well, that's where mirror neurons come in, and they play a role in in language and music. It's long been known since Alvin Lieberman's uh, seminal work in the 70s from the Haskins Labs that the way we learn to speak is through what's called the motor theory of speech perception. I see you make a, an action with your mouth to make a P sound or an R sound, and it's hardwired in me to know how to make that sound. Now, not all the sounds are hardwired. S's and R's, in fact, are, are particularly difficult, which is why they're the most common speech impediment you find in children. But you hardly ever see a child with an impediment, uh, uh, you know, a child who's, who's neurologically intact, doesn't have any disorder. Uh, you hardly ever see them, you know, mispronouncing a vowel mm-hmm. or the easy consonants like the K's and the T's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, again, more evidence that uh, there's this link between motor action and perception. Now, now you, but you, you think that this change um, that you've, they found some evidence for in Neanderthals was musical before it was linguistic. Is that right? All the evidence that we have is that Neanderthals didn't have any uh, anything like language, but they had to have some form of communication in order to support the kinds of tools that they were making and the kinds of societies that they were keeping. Rock music, obviously. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
If you look, though, to our closest, you don't have to invoke Neanderthals, uh, which are more speculative since there aren't mm. any of them around. Well, every once in a while I see one that might qualify. But um, You look at, our, at chimpanzees. The panhoot of the chimpanzee is the closest thing we have mm. uh, to that. And what it is, it's the primary form of communication of chimpanzees, and it consists of variations in pitch and in rhythm, a lot more like music than like language. Mm. And um, when you compare their brains to our brains, one of the things that you find is that we've got more stuff in the prefrontal cortex. We have this Broca's area that they don't really seem to have. They've got something called um, area 11 and 12 that aren't instantiated the same way in humans. So there have been some evolutionary changes. That's clear. The claim that those changes gave us um, the ability for music and language, I think, is not controversial. Mm. Mm. Whether, whether one preceded the other, I guess, would be That's disputable. controversial. Yeah. Um, but in order to hold on to the view that language came before music, what you have to um, argue is that as soon as Homo sapiens, sapiens came onto the scene, as distinct from Neanderthals and Australopithecines, they... Uh, forgot about the music that Neanderthals putatively had and that, you know, gorillas and chimpanzees and other great apes have. Vervet monkeys have a kind of a musical community. So Homo sapiens forgot about music. They discovered language and then sometime later rediscovered music. Mm -hmm. I, just, you know, I, I find that less plausible. Mm -hmm. Now you, uh, in your book and, and some of your other writings, I think, have expressed a certain um, skepticism about animals' musicality. I mean, most people would say birds are singing, for instance. Well, I don't think I would say that I'm skeptical about their musicality. I'm skeptical about equating uh, animal uh, vocalizations and human music too closely. There, certainly there are points in common. But um, when we listen to bird song, it sounds musical to us. Mm -hmm. In fact, Mozart was inspired by bird song. Uh, but I think it's interesting and informative. It's educational to look at both the points in common and the differences. So uh, birds, um, when you take their song and record it and then transpose it and play it back to them, most species won't recognize it as the same song. One of the cornerstones of all human music is that you can transpose. Mm. Uh, you can sing it in other keys. You can even sing it an octave away. In fact, uh, children, because of their higher voices, are typically singing an oct octave higher than we adults. Women sing an octave higher than men. And it's not that you don't recognize the song when they do that. When we all sing Happy Birthday at a party, if we're singing the same notes, we're still an octave apart. Many bird species don't recognize an octave transformation, let alone more exotic transformations. So that's one aspect of it that I would say is not musical in the human mm -hmm, sense. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that animals tend to have fixed uh, musical patterns. They don't compose music. They don't on the spot. They don't. Uh, they don't improvise. Now, mockingbirds are a special case. And right. Of course, there are always a few exceptions. But as a rule, animal song is fixed. I'm calling it song loosely. It's fixed in its structure. It doesn't have the properties of recursion and recombination that characterize human music. And moreover, they use it for two. They tend to use it for two very specific reasons: um, mate selection and territory preservation. Mm -hmm. Vervets and crows and um, some other species use it as a warning. There are robins in my neighborhood that go crazy when I walk my dog, mm -hmm. and they're, they're clearly warning other robins that there's a dog on the loose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but limited limited context. So you say they, they may not be uh, most animals may not be real composers, but at least in this case, they can be pretty good accompanists. You know, and there's the. There's I, a, I should jump in and say that is a, a rancher in Montana, John Hoyland, and his dog Nippy, who just took up uh, sort of singing on his own initiative. And there's uh, Seamus, the dog, on Pink <laughs> Floyd's album Metal, where you hear, um, I guess it's Roger Waters' dog or David Gilmour's dog singing with them. <laughs> These are unusual, actually. Um, I'm glad you brought this up because there's also a famous YouTube video of a cockatoo dancing. But. <laughs> Uh, really and truly among the animal community, virtually um, every species we know of has an utter lack of an ability to synchronize with music. Now, what I mean by that is that if I clap my hands, almost any human over the age of two can clap along with me as long as I don't you know, do some weird uh, rhythm. I mean, you know, just, I'm talking about basic synchronization. Most people can mm -hmm. synchronize. Uh, if not by clapping, by stamping their foot or something, or swaying, moving. There's, uh, there are very few examples in the animal kingdom of animals that can do that. Chimpanzees will bang on drums or bang sticks together, as will elephants, but if a second member of the um, group comes in, a second chimp or a second elephant, their banging isn't synchronized. No sense of first. rhythm. No. <laughs> no. So synchronization appears to involve some brain structures that... They may have, but that they're not able to use in the way that humans are. Now, these, these, these are, of course, the demonstrations like this, the dogs and the cockatoo. These are a challenge for scientists. But you have to admit, part of our amusement at them and the appeal of them is that they're kind of rare. Mm -hmm. If every dog mm -hmm. did this all the time, you wouldn't have played it. True. It's, it, it makes the point that animals can be individuals, too, though, uh, which, yeah, uh, people... and it's not exactly clear what's going on there uh, either. Uh, it could have been serendipitous. It could have been, I mean, we don't know. I mean, it, the owner could have recorded a hundred such sessions, and only one of them worked. Mm. Actually, the uh, as, as I understand it, uh, in that case, that dog really does do that. There's more recordings of him. Okay. This is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. Robert Polly here with the 7th Avenue Project. Today, a 2008 interview with the neuroscientist and musician Dan Levitin, discussing his latest book, The World in Six Songs. And I want to mention that that recording of Montana rancher John Hoyland that we heard a moment ago, featuring John on accordion and his dog Nippy on vocals, was made by the award-winning radio producer Barrett Golding of the Hearing Voices Collective. Now back to my interview with Dan Levitin. You uh, you make the point that that we are now sort of bathed in music to an extent that never before in history has been possible because of all the recording technologies and all the playback mechanisms we now have that pretty much pipe in music 24 hours a day if yeah. we want it to. In other words, we're, we're setting our lives to a soundtrack now. Yeah. And you say that uh, the average 14-year-old will hear more music in a month than your grandfather heard in his entire life. Yeah. What's the impact of that, do you think? I think it's too early to say, and I think it's um, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, 
I mean, uh, as somebody who appreciates the arts, I think the more that um, people engage with the arts, the better. I mean, having all those songs to choose from and to listen to, that's got to be enriching. Uh, and I, th I think that it's close, you know, having, having our days awash in music is probably closer to our ancient evolutionary origins than not. From what we know of hunter-gatherer societies, you know, music accompanies many of the daily rituals, the washing of the clothes, the uh, cooking, preparation, caring for infants, whatever um, ceremonies occur around the fire at night. These were very musical communities, uh, and they were coincidentally or incidentally dancing communities, mm -hmm. too. Music has sort of become the soundtrack of our day or, or auditory wallpaper. It's, it's there more than it has been for uh, hundreds of years, but it's probably more similar to the way you know, we evolved to experience it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only difference being that uh, uh, in, the, in the earlier days of our species, uh, and by earlier I mean you know, for thousands and thousands of years up until about the 1700s, music was participatory and everybody joined in. Now we have this class of experts like uh, Rihanna and Kanye West and uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Paul McCartney, and we let them make music for mm -hmm, us. Mm -hmm. Good example of what you were just talking about, traditional setting where uh, music is jointly made and accompanies every activity. This is um, pygmy music. I guess you're a fan of that. Yeah. This is from the Baca Pygmies from oh, yeah, Cameroon. I, I know this. And this, this is a yeah, uh, this, mushroom are great. gathering sound. Yeah. The thing I find fascinating about pygmy music is that it sounds like just a bunch of people hollering without and not listening to each other, to many people. First time I heard it, I went, what the hell is going on mm. here? Sometimes they sing together, and it's, it, some of them are singing together, some of them are not singing together, some of them are matching pitch, some aren't, but in fact, it's just that they're using scales and, and rhythmic forms that we're not accustomed to. That, as you hear more and more pygmy music, and you you know you hear that oh well they do know what they're doing. It's kind of like the reaction that a lot of kind of uptight people had to ebonics, right? Where you hear uh, this mode of speaking and you think well, there's no rhyme or reason to it. But in fact, uh, as um, John McWhorter, uh, yeah. one linguist who right and demonstrated I, that it was rigorous right. language. That's right. Yeah, and I believe also. Um, uh, Bill Labov in uh, Philadelphia, I oh, think, okay. uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, have, have shown that there's rules and structure. Mm -hmm. you know, we may not know them, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean it's not there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that pygmy music, in fact, was the precursor to gospel singing in, in contemporary churches. And the reason I say that is that in pygmy music, everybody has a chance to sing. It's a really democratizing kind of a, a music. And the singing together um, is 
symbolizing solidarity, and yet the what you might call antiphonal singing, the filling in the gaps, signifies the power of the individual. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and sometimes you have a lead and you have a chorus and yeah. so on and so forth. Uh, well, there's this pygmy classic, which has now become a standard, I think. There's a famous story about this. I'm, <laughs> this I'm, recording, in fact, yeah. Yeah, I don't have that. I, I, I'd love it if you would send that to me. I've been sure. looking for it. <laughs> anthropologists, uh, do you want to tell the story? Uh, should I? Yeah. Oh, could I tell a story? Sure. No, you, no, you, no, you tell it. Uh, well, this is, show. this is recorded by Colin Turnbull, the, yes. the anthropologist who wrote the very famous book, uh, The Forest People, about the pygmies he yeah. lived with. And um, he was recording their songs, and he asked them to uh, sing the oldest song in their repertoire. And they sang My Darling Clementine, which had been taught to them, why? But by a missionary? By some missionaries. Yeah. I, and as I, as I understand it, they were putting him on, of course. They, they were fed up with being um, infantilized. Uh-huh. Anthropologists would come in, uh-huh. and maybe because of their short stature, maybe because they were of a darker skin color. Anthropologists treated them like children. And, you know, oh, show us your wonderful rituals and... You know, can you teach us about your culture? And there was a kind of an offensive, um, I think, condescension going on, unwittingly, certainly, on the part of the anthropologists. But the pygmies um, are and were a a distinguished and proud and graceful, intelligent culture. And I, I think they found it very offensive to have all these um, Westerners coming in and mm-hmm. trying to study them. And so as a way to demonstrate that they didn't want to, uh, you know, cooperate anymore, they put on Turnbull. And no, it's not the case that our song, Oh Darling, just for some listeners who aren't sure, it's not the case that the song we know of as Clementine was stolen from the pygmies. <laughs> These pygmies learned it from missionaries and turned the tables on the, on the anthropologists. Oh, I thought the music executives had just ripped them off as, you know, as per tradition, you know. Never give them a, a, a cent of royalties. Um, you know, we, we're talking about how uh, that, that that you say in your book, the average 14-year-old will hear more music than, say, uh, your grandfather's generation did because of all the yeah. all the uh, recorded music they're able to to access now. What is it about youth and music? You know, I think back to, to my youth, and I'm sure yours also, where music was a huge part of our lives. Yeah. Some people just lived for it, and it's yeah. still the case. What is it about being young and the importance of music? Um, I think that at least in the last 40 years, um, music has been one of many ways that we, mostly Americans, you know, Western Europeans, uh, as as children and adolescents, one of the many ways that we form our personal and our social identity. Um, around the age of 13 or 14, 
we come to realize that we can make choices about our lives. We don't have to live the way our parents did or even the way our parents wanted, want us to. Uh, we can have our own interests uh, and our own desires and beliefs. And there's a world of beliefs out there to be discovered. Do I believe in God or not? If so, am I a Christian? Am I a Jew? Am I a Muslim? Am I a, am I a Buddhist? Do I believe in war or not? You, you know, we go through this period in the early teen years of realizing we can question all the assumptions that we hold. We can become who we want to be. And we organize all of this socially with our friends. So uh, you see in any contemporary American high school, uh, there, are, there are subgroups, people who dress alike and, and talk alike. They read the same books, see the same movies, listen to the same music. Mm -hmm. In my high school, I mean, just to... You know, I was born in 1957, so to give you a context, uh, in my high school, there were people who listened to Fleetwood Mac and Pink Floyd, and there were other people who listened to the Eagles, and um, there were other people who listened to Aretha Franklin and the Temptations, and there was absolutely no crossover. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The music that you listened to, you know, there was the Elton John group, I mean, the, <laughs> the music, and then, then, of course, there was, like, Bad Company and Led Zeppelin, mm -hmm. and, I mean... The music that you listen to is part of your identity. This is what this is our music. Mm -hmm. That's their music. Mm -hmm. This is what we listen to. These are the kinds of things we do, and it's really part of a process of self exploration. Now you add to the mix all of the pubertal hormones that are coursing through your body for the first time, and it makes everything that you think and do seem extremely important, and so it embeds those memories in mm -hmm. your mind, and that's one of the reasons why so many of us, when we um, think about our favorite music, we kind of drift back to those years. I mean, many, it's true, a lot of us have tried uh, to overcome that and, and expand our horizons and are constantly looking for new music. But for many of us, the, the music we like best or think of as, as being cl most closely associated with our identity is music from, say, the age of 13 to 18. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of those songs, uh, the vast majority of those songs listened to by youth and even by, by adults are about love. And that's one of your main yeah. categories, one yeah. of your six song categories. And, um, you know, it's so disproportionately represented as a theme in, in pop music. Yeah. Uh, Again, does this have to do with the the sort of intensity of, of, of being young and horny and romantic and all of that all at the same time? I think, I think some of it is um, that love songs have become more prominent by virtue of the fact that other forms of songs have become less. So we don't need knowledge songs as much as we used to because mm. we can write mm -hmm. or, you know, we can preserve knowledge in a computer or in a Palm Pilot or a cell phone or an index card or what have you, but we don't need to embed it in a song. I, mean, I we still do, but so knowledge songs take uh, more of a backseat. And I think romantic love songs are really sold to us by Madison Avenue and by Disney and, you know, by record companies. And, and yes, I think part of it is, you know, when I was working for Columbia Records, we talked about the the really big segment I mean, sure, Columbia, more so probably than any other record company, tried to span uh, the entire range of of musical life from kiddie records on up to, you know, we had um, big bands and so on. But um, the big market was in 14 to 17-year-olds. Mm. That's what you wanted to tap. And for that, you know, you wanted Backstreet Boys and New Kids on the Block and these kinds of things. There's a kind of youthful, innocent, view of romantic love that songs 
for the last 50 years have been very good at capturing, whether you go to Cole Porter or to Lennon and McCartney or even to um, Britney Spears. There's this kind of look of love, mm-hmm. uh, look, the look of love, <laughs> uh, Bacharach. I think you say in the book that you learned about love in part, as, as many kids do, from, from love songs. Yeah. In your case, songs like this, maybe? Yeah, Flo and Eddie. <laughs> Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together. I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, and ease my mind, imagine how the world could be, so very fine, so happy together. Toss the dice, it had to be The only one for me is you And you for me, so happy together A very idealized version of, of love Such a wonderful song, too <laughs> I mean, the turtles, by the way, Flo yeah, and Eddie. Yes, it's. So, I mean, I remember hearing that when it came out. I don't know. I was eleven or twelve or thirteen, and I thought, oh, it's just, yeah, me and you for the rest of our life together. I could be so happy if I just find that certain someone. So, so you learned about love from from that from that song. I was going to say, how'd that work out? <laughs> from, <laughs> I think from that and dozens of songs like it, uh, as as do many kids, and from Disney movies and. And yet, um, as you point out. You know, at length in your book, a lot of it is based on a simplification, if not an outright illusion, about how long-term relationships evolve, right? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. And, you know, when you talk now as a psychologist, I have a different perspective on all this. When you talk to older couples, I mean, couples who have been married for like 40 years or 50 years, and you talk to them about romantic love, what you usually get is kind of a knowing chuckle from the two of them and a kind of a wink. And what they realize is that, yeah, that that may or may not have been there, but that's got nothing to do with it. What they have now is something more meaningful Mm. and deeper and um, something that really is uh, is powerful in a way that romantic love is not. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to describe if you haven't been through it. And I think few 20-year-olds, let alone teenagers, have experienced that kind of love it really comes from time and from um, shared compromise and education and learning and accommodation over decades. But but somehow that doesn't make for uh, for top forty material, typically. It might make for top forty material in a in a senior uh, <laughs> for senior audiences. I mean, to some extent, that's what Frank Sinatra's "It Was a Very Good Year" is about. Uh-huh. Or both sides uh-huh. now is about that. When I'm 64, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's a nice example. Uh, when I get older, losing my hair. Uh, will you still need me? Will you still feed me? That's a... Yes, of course I will. I mean, that, a friend of mine um, 
is going through a difficult patch in her marriage. They've been married 10 or 15 years. They have two kids. And amid a bunch of other problems she and her husband are having, he suddenly came home and he said, I met this woman at a bar and I had drinks with her and nothing happened. I mean, you know, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have an affair, but I became, he says to his wife, I, I really became enchanted with her. And I have to be honest with you and tell you, I can't stop thinking about her. And the wife said, well, I'm glad you told me, you know, is this something I need to worry about? And he says, well, I realized for the first time since I've known you that maybe you're not the best woman out there in the world for me. There might be someone better. Hmm. Now, she was very, very distraught. I mean, what woman wants to hear that, right? There might be somebody better. Uh, or put another way, what woman who believes in romantic love wants to hear that, right? And so, you know, she was telling me about this, and I said, I got news for you. You're not the best. No way are you the best woman in the world for him. That's impossible. There are six billion people in the world. Now, what would you have me believe? That maybe he knows 20,000 people in his life, right? Maybe. I mean, let's, let's take it at the outside. Maybe he's really outgoing and gregarious, and he's met 200,000 people. You're the best of the 200,000. There's no way you're the best out of six billion. That's not the point. That's not why people get married. People don't get married because they found the best person in the world. I don't have the best job in the world. I don't have the best dry cleaner. I don't get my produce from the best produce market. I did uh, what felt like an appropriate amount of work and research. And at some point, I just decide it's good enough. It's what I'm going to go with because I can't spend my life always looking for something better. <laughs> and, you know, if you get married, really what you're saying is, I admire this person. I respect this person. This person's reasonable. They care for me. I care for them. Uh, and I'm going to make a go of this, and I'm going to stop looking. It doesn't mean that you think they're the best. You, I mean, maybe, you know, for a... If you're caught up in the romantic illusion for the first few years, you do think they're the best. But at some point, that goes away. And, you, and it's not that you think they're the best anymore. It's that you're not looking anymore. Well, have I got a song for you, Dan. <laughs> Randy Newman's Love Story. Do you know this song? No, I don't. I'll take the train into the city every morning. You may be plain, I think in the morning Yeah, some nights we'll go out dancing If I'm not too tired Some nights we'll sit romancing Watching the late show by the fire When our kids are grown Kids their own They'll send us away To a little home in Florida We'll play checkers all day Till we pass away So proof there that, that songs can be sort of anti-romantic too. Well, certainly uh, the the job of the artist is to push at conventions, right? So you have um, 
sort of anti-love songs or subversive, snarky love songs. I mean, you can look at groups like They Might Be Giants or um, The Presidents of the United States of America or Velvet Underground. I mean, mm. sure, there's anti-love songs, mm. but you, can, you don't have to look any farther than My Funny Valentine for mm. that, mm. which really is a subversive kind of... I mean, mm. if, you've, if you've only listened to the music, you've missed the sort of ironic twist you know that you know this is not somebody who's not much to look at talking about defects yeah but um it doesn't mean that it's not a kind of love song is your figure less than greek is your mouth a little weak when you open it to speak are you smart? But don't change your hair for me. Not if you care for me. Stay little Valentine. back to your, your grandmother who we talked about earlier yeah. and her, her little ritual playing God Bless America uh, every morning. Is that right? Yeah. Um, what she was doing, in a sense, if I, if I take your scientific evolutionary view, was it was a case of a brain choosing a stimulus that made that brain feel better. Um, and when you talk about the evolution of music in your book, you talk about circumstances like relieving tension, um, allaying fear. In other words, taking tendencies that themselves evolved, fear, anxiety, which yeah. were supposedly good because they helped, kept us alert to dangers and things like that. Yeah. And then music evolves as sort of an antidote to those other tendencies that themselves evolved yeah. for yeah. adaptive reasons. Yeah. The brain having to use music to treat the brain's own problems. Well, but we do, I mean, it's true, there's an interesting recursion there. There is. But we do that in a lot of domains. In the musical domain, we do use music for self-medication. We use it, we play a certain kind of music to help get us going in the morning, another kind to relax us, another kind to get us through the exercise workout. I mean, look at all the Olympic athletes with the earbuds uh, that we've seen on television. But... Um, you know, the brain seeks other things. I mean, we we take a nap when we, we uh, need one. We uh, breathe deeply when we're um, stressed. We, um, you know, rub the part of us that's sore or that's aching. I mean, the, the brain does have the equipment to figure out what it needs, and it, it applies them in a lot of, you know, we eat when we're hungry. Uh, when we're low on energy, we naturally have an instinct towards sugar, all these things. I guess the, the, the thing I'm hitting at is, why didn't, evolution just give the brain the ability to control itself without having to... Well, now that's an interesting question. You know Why what I mean? Can't People I just... work very hard to, to turn off tension, to right. turn off fear, to focus on the moment, to do things to 
to, to rein in uh, rather destructive natural tendencies or counterproductive right. Why tendencies. can't I will myself exactly. to have a shot of dopamine? Exactly. Why do you have to go find music and spend a lot of your life doing it, you know, uh, in order to? That's, that's the odd thing to me uh, in this story. That's a good question, and I don't know the answer. Uh, it's possible that that will... Um, and I, I don't know any animal that can do that except for maybe deer who have this big burst of tranquilizing... Uh, chemicals when they're about to be attacked so that they don't feel the pain. Mm-hmm. You know, anesthetic and tranquilizing uh, hmm. neurochemicals are released when a deer's about to be mauled. Uh, I don't know of many other examples, but, you know, right, why can't humans just, you know, as easily as I can lift my finger, why can't I make my brain produce something to put me in a particular mood? And, you know, of course, that's what the mystics are always saying exactly. they can do. Exactly. Instead, you spend huge amounts of energy... It's counterproductive sometimes to survival, seeking out various forms of medication. Uh, it may be, and I'm only speculating here because I've never been asked this question before. It may be that what you're looking at here is a product not of individual evolution, but of group evolution. That it's maladaptive for the group if everybody can satisfy their own needs all on their own that in order for societies to um, actually uh, survive, there has to be some interpersonal contact. And maybe evolution has figured out that societies are better than a bunch of individuals and has selected for them. And that's why we have altruism and people who care about others, even at their own expense, and uh, why evolution has selected... Uh, for a solution to this problem uh, that we have to go out into the world and seek others in order to reach our own homeostasis. I'll buy that. Dan, thank you. Thank you, Robert. Dan Levitin is James McGill Professor of Psychology at McGill University. His most recent book is The World in Six Songs, How the Musical Brain Created Human Nature. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week.